What's up? Hope you guys are having a great day today. My name is Matthew Spazzini and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzini program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. All right. Today is Monday. We are finally recording on a Monday. Uh, I don't know. For those of you guys who, who have been listening to me for, for a little while now, first and foremost, I, I, I need to apologize yet again. Uh, this last week's episodes ended up coming out this week again and uh, today, in fact. And uh, the main reason was just... Man, I mean, last two weeks in general have just been crazy with the holidays and preparation for those, family and all that stuff. It's been absolutely insanity. You know, uh, just I'm coming to find that having a one-year-old and getting stuff done around the house is incredibly difficult. Although, I mean, I've already known this for for, for a year now, but, you know, uh, this will be the first time that we're trying to get Christmas decorations out around the time with my one-year-old daughter crawling around and everything. Pretty crazy. It's, it's, you know, I, the other night I was just thinking to myself, it just was one of the things that really gets me a lot is just that when have, with having kids, you don't realize how much freedom that you lose when you have children. Not to dissuade any of you who are on the fence about having kids or anything of the sort. It is truly a wonderful blessing and it really is something that's great and I love it. But yeah, you don't have the same kind of uh, freedoms that you had before you had children. I mean, for me, for example, my wife and I, when we were young and, you know, when we were not really newlyweds, but we, we didn't have kids, right? And we could go, we could do whatever we wanted. You know, we could go to a restaurant really late at night. We could do whatever we wanted. And we did. And it was great. And now that I have children... Or I, at least I have a child. Uh, we can't do those things anymore. And, you know, it's still great. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still absolutely wonderful. But it's it's wonderful in a different way. And uh, But there are some differences. And I think I, I very much... I... How would you say I underestimated the differences and and whatnot of, of having uh, a child and, and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, that said, that's a bit of my life, a snapshot of my life for, for this episode. Just been, just been a little crazy and whatnot. I do apologize. Uh, this week I do intend to get these episodes out a lot sooner. Uh, preferably on the weekend, not after the weekend in the start of the new week. So uh, so hopefully I will be able to do that. I don't foresee anything on this week that's going to, you know, make it difficult for me to do. But anyways, if you are new, I want to say thank you for giving me some of your time today. I really do appreciate it. You know, here we talk about financial freedom and economics. And, you know, the, the main reasons we talk about that kind of stuff is because... Financial freedom, they're really backs to the same coins, right? Financial freedom is all about, is you could probably substitute it with the word entrepreneurship. I prefer the term financial freedom because frankly, it just sounds cool, sounds sounds really nice, but you know, they, they, uh, they sort of can be the same way, although I would say that an entrepreneur doesn't, is not necessarily a free, uh, a financially free person. Financial freedom has two components to it, controlling your money and then 
being in control of the source of where your money's coming from. So, right, controlling the source of your income. That's that's what financial freedom is. You know, and, and what I mean by controlling your money, you know, trying, you're basically being debt-free, not overspending, not getting involved in debt, you know, and ultimately controlling the money and not letting it or your impulses control you, you know, and that's the idea. You want to enslave your money and not let the money enslave you. And it's an interesting idea because a lot of people allow their money to enslave them. A lot of people, you know, have credit cards, which are personal enslavement devices. You know, a lot of people have a massive amount of debt, which again, if you are in debt, you are a slave to the lender. The borrower is always slave to the lender. You want uh, any kind of proof of this? Stop paying your bill. See what happens. You know, uh, they could take a car. If you got a car loan, they could take your house. If you got a mortgage, they could take whatever it was that you spent the money on the credit card. And if they, and if you do not possess what you spent, you know, on the credit card, they could do all kinds of stuff to you. Okay. You don't want to go down that path. The borrower is always slave to the lender. So the point, and right now, when you consider that slavery is very much in vogue in America today, you got people that have that that are supporting this whole slavery score. It's also known as a credit score. How good how good of a little debt slave are you, and whatnot? And you know, I mean, it's fascinating because so many people are like, oh, I don't want my credit score to be hurt. I don't want my credit score to be my credit score to be hurt. But it's like that's just your personal enslavement score. You know, I thought we worked very hard in America to get rid of slavery. Turns out in the 21st century, slavery, while it's no longer limited to one group of individuals, one minority group, now it's everyone. Everyone is a slave. You got debt, you're a slave. You're a debt slave. And it's very, very much in vogue today. And it's it's a very, very sad thing. But the reason we, so that's why we talk a lot about financial freedom here. You know, it sounds, I know I I sometimes can sound like a, uh, a broken record, but the reason why I think that way is because it had to be drilled into me for years before I started doing anything. I was listening to those ideas, gosh, for, let's see, uh, three, four years before I actually decided to do anything about it, before I decided to take action. I always told myself I had time. You know, I got time. I got time. Everything's fine. Everything's dandy. You know, wife's got a good job. We're living in a nice, a nice place. We got, I got time, right? What little time did I really have? You know, the fact of the matter is that uh, you never really know. And I took a lot of the time that I did have for granted. And I would highly encourage you to not do the same thing, to get started on controlling your, you know, income and uh, taking control of the source of your income and controlling your money and to do those things today. But the reason we talk about the financial freedom is because it's your freedom, your liberties are wholly tied to your wealth, not partially, wholly. And not holy as in the sense of divine or divine right or or God or whatnot. <laughs> holy as in entirely. Your liberties and freedoms are entirely tied to the wealth that you have. If you don't have any, you're a lot less free than the person who has a lot. You know, I mean, have you ever felt like, uh, you know, you don't have options? You just can't get ahead? You know, life is getting more expensive? Yeah, you and everyone else in the country. Why is that? Because most people are poor. Even low to mid-range middle-class people, still poor. Because poverty is a mentality, right? Poverty is a mentality where we blame things on external factors that we have no control over. And we never, and we, we, very rarely do we take responsibility for our actions. 
And we allow our money to control us. That's the poverty mentality, victimhood mentality. And unfortunately, it's like I said, you know, that that is also invoked today very much so. But the reason we talk about, you know, financial freedom is because our freedom is tied to it. Because our freedom is tied to where our money comes from and how much we have of it. The more money we have, if we control it, the better off our lives will be and the freer that you and I will be. And ladies and gentlemen, that is just the truth. In the event that the country goes down, you know, the twos, basically we can up and leave if we need to. We're, we, we've got money. We've got the freedom. We've got mobile income. We have the ability to do this, right? No, other people don't have that ability. But let's not look at such a a massive extreme option. Let's look at other options. You know, if you have money, a lot of it, you don't have to go into debt, which means most of your stuff can't be taken away from you. And I say most because technically speaking, if you have a house and even if you own it and you stop paying on the taxes, eventually the city will start putting tax liens on your property and they could potentially kick you out of your home. So, you know, they could take that. Okay, because technically we don't we don't actually own homes. Even if you don't have a mortgage, you're not renting it from, you know, a bank essentially, you know, which is the worst landlord ever because they don't fix anything. <laughs> you're basically paying rent and they don't fix a thing, mind you. But once even if you don't owe money to the bank and you actually own your house outright, as long as you pay property taxes, you do not own your house. Because if you were to stop paying property taxes, your house would be taken away from you. That's the truth. You're merely renting your home from whatever city that you live in. That's that's the truth. But ladies and gentlemen, the fact of the matter is that when you are wealthier, you have more options. When you are wealthier, you have freedom. And that's why we talk so much about financial freedom today. And it's a very hard thing to do. You know, it's not easy to to get out there and create freedom. So there, there's that. So we talk about that. And then we also talk about economics because that's the flip side of the exact same coin, right? You know, in order to be free, we need to understand the problems that are out there. And I wouldn't be incentivized to becoming financially free if I didn't feel there was a reason to do it. And I'll be honest with you guys, I do a lot of it out of fear, a fear of the unknown of what's going to happen in the future, fear of not controlling the source of my income and the risks that I am incurring by not doing that. A long time ago, never used to bother me. A long time ago, I used to be perfectly fine with not being financially free. I, I didn't know any different. I didn't know anything about economics. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I didn't know anything about any of that. I was pretty decent when it came to personal finances. I stayed away from debt as much as I possibly could. I have never owned a credit card, but except for one tiny instance where I accidentally took out a credit card at a jewelry store, not knowing it was a credit card, I thought it was a rewards card, kind of like your uh, your little rewards card. If you ha- if you go to Kroger, you know, they give you a little rewards card, you scan, you get fuel points. I thought it was something akin to that, you know, accumulating points or, or you know, discounts for jewelry purchases after you've already made a certain amount of purchase or whatever. But, uh, and I eventually I canceled that card and, and whatnot. <laughs> and I never used it though. So I, I don't use credit cards. I never have. But the fact of the matter is, you know, outside of that, I would, I didn't know anything about economics. I didn't know anything about political theory, political philosophy. I didn't know anything about trading Forex options, futures, invest. I didn't know all the stuff that I know today. I didn't know any of that back in the day. And that was probably 
maybe six, seven years ago. It was a long, it was a fair, well, in my mind, it feels like it was a long time, but in reality, I know that in the grand scheme of things, it's really was not that long ago, but it, it was, it was a little while ago, right? And I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know any of that. And the fact remains is I didn't ever feel the urge to take control of my finances because I never knew about any of this stuff. Once I started learning about economics, once I started having my eyes opened, I could no longer just sit on the bleachers and let the game go by. I had no idea. I didn't even know the game was going on. Yeah, ignorance is bliss, right? It really, really is. And I had no idea, no clue that any of that was happening. So I'm telling you my personal story there to get you to understand that you need to understand what's coming down the road. You need to understand, understand the real risks that are affecting our daily lives so that you understand the importance of why you need to become financially free so that you are motivated to become financially free. There needs to be an incentive. Just like in everything else in life, we need an incentive to act and those incentives are almost always emotional. Largely, you don't make a decision without emotions. A lot of people uh, get this confused when they think that they want to engage in investing or trading. You know, you always hear people have the advice of take your emotions out of it. That's impossible. Every single decision that we make is based off emotions. Absolutely every single one. You can't make a decision without emotions. So the, the interesting thing about it is that you need the emotions. What you need to do is you just need to try to control them as best you can. You don't want to engage in instant gratification without considering the risks, without doing your research, doing the groundwork that's necessary. You don't want to jump into real, it's, it's like jumping into real estate investing without knowing anything about real estate, without knowing what drives the industry, what drives prices, without knowing, you know, how to manage the property, all that kind of stuff. You don't want to jump into it without doing some research, you know, I mean, you don't want to go buy house if you don't even know what the comps, you know, the competitive prices in the area. You don't want to do that without knowing what prices are in that area so that you know whether you're getting a good deal or not. Whether you, And you don't really want to buy the, the property unless you understand what to look for to make sure it's not a lemon. And what I mean by that, for those of you who don't, who aren't in the U.S., or even if you are, you're not familiar with the term, uh, buying a lemon, it, it, we use that term when we're buying cars, right? If you buy a lemon, uh, for well, if you buy a car and you classify it as a lemon, it's a car that had a lot of problems. You were not aware of it and it was constantly breaking and causing problems. A house can be the same way. You buy a house it's really old. It was never taken care of. There's a lot of problems that it had. So you have to constantly fix it over and over and over again. And it's nothing more than one big massive money pit that would be considered a lemon. I don't know why a lemon in particular, maybe because lemons are sour. I don't know why that terminology exists, but that's the terminology that, that most people use with anything that continually breaks and, and ultimately is a, a money pit and doesn't ever seem to stop breaking. So anyways, that said, you know, we need to understand economics in order to understand why we need to become financially free. We need to understand the risks that are out there in order to motivate us to even engage in that and start that journey. And that's why they're the sides of the same coin. You see, economics gives us the ability to see what's coming down the line, right? Economics is what allows us to understand what risks are really out there. 
and the risks that we are taking by having our money control us and where we're going into lots of debt and all that kind of stuff. How many, how much risk is, is in that? It also teaches us that how, how risky it is to have somebody else controlling the source of our income all the time. You know, never, you know, we're never taught that these things are risky. We're taught to go to school, get good grades, get a good job. So translation, go to school, go into debt. So become a debt slave. While you're in school, you're a mind slave to the professor, right? You have to understand what the professor wants. This, this priestly figure who will tell you what is right and what is wrong. And if you don't understand what he wants, you're never going to pass his course and all that. You're a mind slave effectively. And then you go get a job and then you become a wage slave. Well, I say a lot of people don't agree with that. A lot of people think that's a leftist term. I don't view that as a leftist term. I'm not a leftist. Not 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 one not one single bit. But um, the fact of the matter is that you are a wage slave. You work for somebody else for money. You're trading your time for dollars, and you do not have the ability to not do that. If you do, if you decide not to to exchange your time for dollars in that sense and whatnot, you don't earn an income, and then you can't afford to live. Your life is so expensive, you can't afford to, uh, you know, go off without any income at all. You are very much a wage slave. Now, you can hop from one master to the other. You can hop from one master to the other, absolutely. But in reality, you are a wage slave. Look, there's a biblical Bible verse for those of you guys who are Christians. And uh, even if you're not a Christian, you might find this fascinating. But there is a, a, bib, a, a Bible verse in Proverbs that talks about this. And it says something to the effect of the rich always rule over the poor. There will always be a ruled and a ruler. The businesses are the rich. The owners are the rich people. And those who work for them are the poor. That's the truth. A lot of people don't think of that of it in that way. The owners are of production, the bourgeoisie, if you will. They are the rich and the wealthy. Many, some of them aren't. Some of them aren't that rich. Some small business owners aren't that rich, but they're richer than you if you work for them. I'm telling you that right now, you're getting the you're getting the crumbs. You know, you're getting the crumbs thrown from the table. And I don't mean to demonize the rich, okay? Before you guys get all upset about that, I don't mean to demonize the rich. The rich, uh, they're, they're, there's nothing evil about making money and being rich. It's a good thing. It's, it's necessary in society. It's not just from an economic standpoint. It's absolutely necessary. We need to become wealthy. And, it's, and we should celebrate when other people are. As long as they're obtaining their wealth through ethical means and they're not screwing over everyone else, they're not selling a product that, that you know, by definition sucks and they're not, you know, cheating people out of their money or treating people horribly by scamming people or things of that nature. As long as they are providing value, not perceived value. There's a difference between perceived value and real value. Perceived value is, well, I think I'm getting a good deal. I think I'm I, I'm getting value, but in reality, I'm wrong and I'm not really getting that value. Whereas real value, is you're actually getting value. It actually materially improves your life or in some way it improves your life. That is the difference. So, you know, they're actually providing real value to other people. You know, the creators, the rich and the wealthy who created the cell phone. At one point in time, the cell phone was only accessible to the rich and the wealthy, and it was a big freaking 
brick that had an antenna sticking out of it. Most people today wouldn't want, I mean, knowing what cell phones are today, wouldn't want to own something like that. But if we didn't have the rich and the wealthy wanting the latest and greatest, wanting to be what many people call vain, if it wasn't for the rich's vanity and having the latest and greatest and and showing off their their richness, we wouldn't have a lot of the products that we have today. Cars, yeah, you wouldn't have those. Cars were around long before Ford came around and the and his Model T and his assembly line. You know, there there were other cars before that. There were other automobiles. And <laughs> in reality, I mean, but they were only accessible to the rich and the wealthy. But it was such a massive show of wealth to have such a cool piece of tech that drove around and you didn't have horses and you didn't have carriages. And it was like, holy crap, how amazing is that? You're driving around and this big metal machine makes lots of noises and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and the fact of the matter is when people see you doing that, what does that say? That says you're cool, you're forward thinking, it says you're rich, you're wealthy. And if it wasn't for them creating the demand for those products, there would have been no demand for more manufacturers like Ford to come in and produce more and to produce it at a cheaper price. You see, it's always the rich and the wealthy that are actually responsible for a lot of the technology that we have today. Now, things have changed a little bit, particularly when it comes to software. Software doesn't take a lot of money to produce, um, or at least not as much money as like manufacturing and things of that nature. There's no investment in, you know, a, a building or whatnot. You can produce a piece of software in your garage, or which many people did, or you can produce a piece of software in your room, in your house. But the fact of the matter is that technology that is the latest and greatest and new needs demand in order for someone to have an incentive to come in and produce it at a cheaper price. Now, what gets in the way of this? Regulations. Regulations that are intended to help the the consumer, intended to keep you from getting screwed by the evil rich man. So government, for lack of a better term, government, statists, Whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. I know uh, status is a popular terminology in in libertarian circles, but you get the idea, right? Interventionism. Intended to protect the U.S. consumer. It's never, it's always sold to us as it's for our benefit. Largely, and you know, the vast majority of the time, it's not. It has nothing to do with us. Usually it's because it's for the benefit of some corporation that lobbied for it. And in reality, it hurts everyone else while only benefiting a very small portion of people. Like uh, tariffs for steel. Tariffs for steel, tariffs for any product, you know, but when, when it comes to the steel manufacturing, you know, people are getting their steel from China, people are getting their steel from other places, and the tariffs make that stuff more expensive. It's a tax, and it's a tax on the people. Because whoever uses that steel, whatever products have steel, just now became more expensive because as capitalism, as free markets go... The, you know, the business owners, the bourgeoisie are always going to try and get the highest quality product for the cheapest price. This is also true for consumers. Everyone does this. Doesn't matter who you are. Everyone wants the cheapest quality product for the highest, for, for, for the lowest price. That, that's the truth. 
And the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that, you know, a business owner wants to maximize profits. So he's going to go with the cheapest metal, even if it's, you know, as long as it's good enough quality, okay? And if it's bad quality, he'll realize that and he'll shift to another product, another supplier, things of that nature. But trying to maximize profits is part of being a business owner. That's the whole purpose. And when the business owner does that, they're going for, for Chinese steel, and when they or, and when the business owner goes for Chinese steel, that's the whole reason behind it. They're trying to maximize profits. Most people who understand capitalism and who have, at, even in a slightest sense, understand and research business and things of that nature, most people understand that. But there's a lot of people out there that don't. And but the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, you know when they're going for that Chinese steel, that cheap stuff, and you make it more expensive, okay? You make it so much more expensive by raising tariffs on it. You're, you are now pushing the business owner, the owner of production, the bourgeoisie, you're pushing that person to go find a more, uh, uh, another cheap-ish steel, but it's going to be more expensive than the one that they were already buying because they were already buying the cheapest stuff or they were already buying the cheapest product for the high, with the highest quality. They were already doing that. And then you came in, the, the government, and you decided that, uh, yeah, we don't want to let you engage in that free trade. We don't want to let you do what's best for your business and your, your customers, mind you. We want you to ultimately you know, buy some more expensive stuff. And they might even make claims that, well, that's crappy steel. You know, that's a, it produces, you know, cars that are unsafe or whatever. Well, first and foremost, how, how the heck would a politician know that? Politicians are dumb. M many of them, many of them do not deserve the position that they are in. They are not educated. They're not qualified. Many of them are just bureaucrats. You know, many of them are not intelligent enough to be in a position of, of even attempting to run a country. And yet they are anyways, because you know why? They know how to prey on the emotions of mindless people, rubes, plebs, whatever you want to call them. And they know how to game the system, how to network with the rich and the powerful, the power brokers that be, and they know how to get, they know how to get and go. Basically, they're conniving snakes. <laughs> For lack of a better term, they are conniving snakes. I don't have a, a, a very uh, fond image of politicians. There, there are a few that um, I think stand for liberty and freedom. You know, the Liberty Caucus, you know, Thomas Massey, you know, then there's Rand Paul and... Um, Justin Amage, I want to say his name is. I, I, I forget. Amage, is, I think, is his last name. I forget his first name. I think it's Justin Amage. Uh, but anyways, that said, though, there are a few, but they're few and far between. They're very few and far between. And maybe there are more that I haven't listed, but you, you even if you want to go off and criticize me and say, oh, Matthew, there's more than that, or whatever, there's few and far between. The fact of the matter is politicians should be viewed as snakes, not liberators of the people, not, uh, not experts or free, you know, or whatever. We shouldn't hold them up on a pedestal. Most of them are snakes. The vast majority of them are it, with the intention of leeching from society, making their money through stolen money, getting paid under the table by lobbyists. Fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that these politicians are not your friends. They never were. And that's the truth. It's a hard truth to stomach, but it's the truth. 
You know, they're not kings and queens who owned the country outright. The country was their property, and therefore they effectively had to ensure, while they did, many kings and queens abused their property, there were limits to what they could abuse, although there were kings and queens that abused it too much, to the point of losing their uh, their throne, uh, for you know, but, but the fact of the matter is that there is a, there was a direct incentive structure for them to manage the company or the, the the country in a decent way because from because if they had abused it too much they would have gotten kicked off the throne beheaded and this happened it's happened many times you know and even before the beheading sometimes they brought other kings in to war with the king so that they could uh, in effect you know get in uh, under new management right get better management but the fact of the matter, you know, uh, is that kings and queens had a direct incentive because they were around for the entirety of their life. They had a direct incentive of not managing the country into the ground, micromanaging it, being authoritarians, uh, you know, n not trying to control every aspect of life. There were, yes, I know what happened, but it, but there, but there were many kings and queens where it didn't happen, and the incentives were better. Whereas for a politician who just comes in, you know, for a particular term and then leaves, their incentive is to leech from the system as much as they possibly can, to engorge themselves like a leech, sucking the life force out of the nation, trying to get power and money. They don't own the country. They're not going to be around for forever. They're certainly not going to be around for the entirety of their life. Their incentive is to leech Every single ounce of it as much as they can before they leave. And the bureaucrats, the ones who are there and have a very, very low turnover and may even be there for the entirety of their life, again, they still don't own it. They, they know that when they die, it's not going to be theirs. They don't own it. They can't pass it down to their children. The incentive is still not there to treat it well. Unless the individual is a highly, highly moral and principled individual, they're not going to be managing it well. And what I mean by highly moral and highly principled, they're serving for causes and forces that are, that are higher than them. They have a higher calling, if you will. But those people are few and far between. While there are many politicians that would claim that, there are few where that is actually true under close examination. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of them are snakes, thieves and leeches that, that, that that's the truth but you know we're kind of getting off on a very 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 long tangent but yeah i mean when you come in and you make it you know more expensive you know i i, I absolutely hate you know let's do another sidetrack here because you know i'm not even talking about what i intended to talk about with, with regards to this episode i actually intended to talk about homeschooling you know um why more and more people don't homeschool and how parents are being backed into a corner and you know i guess maybe we'll talk about that in, in the next episode because right now we're 30 minutes in and i haven't mentioned that at all actually before we hop into the next the next thing that i want to talk about which is going to be Tr free trade in the nation and all that kind of stuff and how we view trade you know let's go ahead and do some affiliates all right ladies and gentlemen if you are interested in getting a better education if you feel that your education is lacking and you have become a victim of educational malpractice then go check out tom wood's liberty classroom ladies and gentlemen if you guys know if you are a libertarian if you know anything about tom woods you know that he's he's a pretty upstanding guy you may not agree with him for absolutely everything but he's a pretty upstanding guy and, and frankly he's not not even the one that ends up teaching the whole thing. I mean, this is a classroom that's really intended for high school students, you know, college education. It's it's more it's more aimed at high school students, but it's such a 
wealth of knowledge. I actually just purchased my master membership course uh, not that long ago, and man, it, it's been amazing. Now, I, I, it's going to take me so freaking long to get through it, but I'm already learning stuff that I didn't even know. And it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. You don't know how much your education is lacking a lot until you have someone tell it to you. When you got someone out there who finally tells you how lacking you are in your education, man, that's when your eyes start to be really, truly open. So it's absolutely amazing when you guys open your eyes for the first time. I know for me, when I first learned about Austrian economics and libertarianism and all that kind of stuff, man, I binge read and listened to podcasts and and read articles and all kinds of stuff. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And that is still very much to this day. That's still how I feel about it. I'm constantly reading articles. I'm constantly reading books. You know, I've got a massive list of of books on free markets and all kinds of stuff. I mean, literally, my list of books is never-ending. If you ever saw it on Amazon, it's literally never-ending. I don't even know if I'm going to read it in my time frame, you know, how much time I got on Earth. I, I don't even know if I can read all of it. Man, if I did, I'd be a walking encyclopedia, assuming I could remember it all. But that said, this Liberty Classroom is absolutely amazing. I've been wanting to purchase it my membership for a long time now, and I finally, finally, finally broke down and did it. And it, it is the coolest stuff ever. I mean, it really really amazing stuff. So if you guys are feeling like you have been a victim of educational malpractice and you just were never taught the right stuff and you're aware of that, but you you don't really, you can't go back to school because, you know, they're just going to continue to fill your head with the normal garbage that they filled your head with in in the first place. So what are you to do? You got to find alternative forms of education. And ladies and gentlemen, the Liberty Classroom is the way to do that. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. I'll post the link in the show notes page below. It's a, it's it really is really cool stuff. I really think you guys, if you're, if you love libertarianism, if you love Austrian economics, you are absolutely going to enjoy it. It's a ton of information. Uh, another reason I bought it is because I intend to homeschool my daughter and my other children, future children and whatnot. So I wanted to go ahead and get the Liberty Classroom and Ron Paul's curriculum and all that kind of stuff. And I want to, you know, more or less just kind of vet it all out first. And, you know, if nothing else, just educate myself on the, on areas that my education has been lacking. So, ladies and gentlemen, as I have discussed in about economics at the beginning of this episode, it is incredibly, incredibly important for us to be aware of economics. It's incredibly important for us to be aware that to see the writing on the wall, to see the things that, that are coming down the road, we need to be able to see the stuff that's coming out in the future in order so that we can prepare against it. And also, our beliefs are probably going to be challenged a lot by leftists, by a whole bunch of other people, by mainstream media, and we need to be able to defend our ideas when the time comes, not for the sake of trying to persuade the individual who's talking to us, but for the sake of maybe persuading someone who's on the fence and doesn't really know. So that said, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in that, go check out Liberty Classroom. It's absolutely an amazing, an amazing, amazing course. And yeah, who knows how long it'll be until uh, the the government starts cracking down and not allowing us to homeschool our kids. You know, I mean, frankly, I mean, homeschooling was only, you know, avail- uh, it was actually illegal, I think, in the entire country up until like the 1980s or something like that. So it's pr- pretty crazy. So who knows with more and more people turning to homeschooling because of the whole pandemic and the lockdown and whatnot. Who knows what kind of restrictions governments are going to pass? I mean, France just basically announced 
uh, not that long ago that uh, homeschooling is illegal. So, you know, I mean, t- take that for what it's worth. But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, there may be a time when we don't have access to this information. So make sure that you get it now. And yeah, and also make sure that you record every ounce of every video that you get and store it on a hard drive so no one else can take it from you. Now, for the intention of selling, obviously, that's piracy. It's not what I'm intending, but you have uh, uh, a permanent solution for keeping your stuff. It's what I do with every ounce of, of course that I buy with every course. It's something I always do. I go out there and I record it and then I have it on my my hard drive and if anyone ever decides to take it down, I'm good. I'm solid. You can't take it away from me unless you come and confiscate my hard drive. (laughs) But anyways, if you're interested in that, go check it out. It will really, you won't be disappointed. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I felt like they should have charged more money. For um for for what it was, I mean, massive massive amount of content. It's gonna take me forever to get through it, but it's absolutely amazing. I can't I can't wait to to continue that journey, and I hope you feel the same way. You go go check it out, go get involved, and you'll not only be getting getting a great product, but you'll also be supporting the show at the same time. So, yeah, it's a win win. All right, guys, the next one is. Money metals exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, we talk a lot. I mean, we talk a ton about, you know, being financially free and inflation and all this kind of how to protect our wealth, how to create our wealth. But then, you know, the other key to that, once you create wealth and you have it, you know, what do you do with it? A lot of us, you know, we we like to put it in savings. We like to build up that savings buffer. But the truth about savings is that savings are really losing its value on a very consistent basis. One of the reasons that a lot of people don't save and a lot of the reasons that why people are incentivized to constantly spend their money and while savings has ticked up due to the whole pandemic and everyone's fearing about losing their jobs and stuff, you know, savings have ticked up quite a bit uh, this year, but they were ticking up from all-time lows right? And the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, you know, when it comes to savings, you don't want to be saving during a pandemic. You don't want to be starting your savings, right? You want to be saving long before then, you know, otherwise you're not going to have much in the way of savings. But the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that most people do not save is because there's not a lot of incentive. You don't get quite the returns from the banks, you know, you, you people know that their money is being eroded away, even if they don't like know this because they don't understand economics, they're economically illiterate. But even if they don't understand it from that perspective, they still know that something's going on. Something is happening with their money. Their money just isn't going that far. So are they really truly incentivized to go out there and save their money? No, they're incentivized to spend every dime that they make. You know, what's, what, what does Milton Friedman always said? Milton Friedman used to say this all the time. And he said that the only response to inf- high inflation is high living. What did he mean by that? He meant when high inflation comes around, what we need to do is we need to take our money and we need to spend it on things that are going to rise with inflation, you know, assets, tangible assets. That's what he was talking about. They're not specifically meaning gold and silver and real estate, but just anything that rises in value, anything that has a long history of rising in value. And there's lots of different things out there. I mean, you know, fine art, historical coins, you know, you can buy coins from the Roman Empire or the Greek or Greek civilization. That's pretty cool stuff. But you know, you don't have to go into that kind of stuff. I mean, you can do, you know, just simple silver coins or you can do, you could go into real estate, real estate. I mean, look, 
There is always land to purchase, land to conquer. Real estate has always been around. It's always had value. Uh, throughout all of human history, it's always, always had value. So real estate would be another option. And the newest you know, member of that family is cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are really, really cool. But ladies and gentlemen, let's be frank. All right, cryptocurrencies can be complicated. I love them. I really do. And I do intend, as I continue to learn more and more and more about them and I continue to get more and more involved with them, I intend to talk about my experiences and, and uh, share what I have learned. So that way, my knowledge becomes yours. But the fact of the matter is that it's complicated for a lot of people. Most people don't understand it. Most people don't want to get involved in it. That's fine. That's cool. It's uh, It hasn't really been a proven piece of tech yet, right? It hasn't really proven itself. It hasn't been around for a very, very long time. So I, I totally understand that. However, the next one is real estate, right? Well, real estate is pretty cool and it's 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 really, really fun. But the problem is it's very, very expensive. It's not hard to understand. Most people understand supply and demand, you know, all that kind of stuff, low interest rates and how it affects the real estate market and, you know, uh, refinancing and all that kind of stuff. Mo a lot of people can easily understand that. But the fact of the matter is that real estate is expensive. So it's out of the reach for the vast majority of people. You know, uh, fine art, again, we mentioned that. Fine art's a great one too. You can get yourself into some really cool art pieces, hang them up on your wall. You get visual satisfaction from them. That is legitimately one very real thing that you can do. I mean, you can buy fine art, but fine art is not liquid. What is liquidity? Liquidity is the ability to sell right? And whether if you put it on the market and you say you're trying to sell it, you know, is it going to sell fast or is it going to sell slow? Fine art is not very liquid. It's hard to sell. And unless you've got a vendor, unless you've got a, a, someone that you know is going to buy it from you, it's not the easiest to get rid of. And, and the same can be said for real estate. However, I would make the argument that real estate's probably easier to sell than fine art. But fine art is still cool. It's an option and it can be, and there's all kinds of fine art at varying different price levels. So you can go look into that kind of stuff. If you know of where to buy that, um, you can go do that. Fine art's cool. It's amazing. Something you could get involved with absolutely, but it's not liquid and it tends to be really expensive. So what is the options? You know, I'm kind of ruling out a lot of other ones. I personally like precious metals. And in particular, I personally like silver. That's my favorite way of building up my hedge against inflation. You know, my answer to high inflation is high living. That's my form of high living. Buying silver, collecting silver coins from sovereign mints and, and sovereign coins, so bullion coins. I, I like to buy sovereign coins from sovereign mints. And, you know, I, I love it. I think it's so cool buying a coin from the Monet de Paris, you know, the, the Paris mint or from the Bank of Mexico, you know, Mexico's mint or or the, the Royal Canadian mint or, you know, I mean, so on and so forth. There's all kinds of cool stuff out there. And so that's what I like to do. That's my personal favorite. Yeah, I'm also now getting involved into ancient historical coins as well. I'm, I'm looking into ancient Roman and, and Greek coins, which are freaking cool. But that said, okay, that's my favorite way of doing it. That's how I build up my hedge against inflation. And one of the, the most popular places that I like to go it's Money Metals Exchange. You know, they do a massive amount of work. You know, they're really, really great. You know, they do really fast shipping and everything. I, I just, I, I love it. I love all the coins. They, they offer a wide variety of precious metals and all sorts of fun stuff. So if you guys are interested in that, go check out Money Metals Exchange. They're running a referral program that I'm involved in where basically if you sign, if you're a new customer and you go ahead and you buy a product from them, if you mention my name, you'll get a free silver coin. Not bad, a pretty cool deal. 
It adds an extra amount of silver to your portfolio, and it, that's very, very helpful. Every little bit helps. So if you are interested in starting that portfolio, that hedge against inflation, this is not financial advice, okay? Just a, you know, disclaimer, not financial advice. You want financial advice, go go get it from a, a licensed professional. I'm not one, but yeah, not financial advice. This is just what I like to do. And if you're interested in it too, go check it out. You can get a free silver coin, adds to your collection, it adds to your hedge against inflation, your insurance policy, which is what I view in, you know, silver and precious metals as. I don't really view it as a traditional investment like you normally would with stocks and bonds and things of that nature. I view it as a hedge against inflation. And it's one method that I use, my favorite method, in order to protect my money that I've created. It's not the only one that I'm doing, but it's one of my favorites and I absolutely love it. So if you're interested, go check it out. You're a new customer, mention my name, you'll get a free silver coin. All right, so one of the things, when we're talking about free trade and whatnot and trade between nations, one thing that really gets my go, it really, really pushes the buttons in all the wrong ways. And it really enrages me when I hear them talking about nations trading and trade deficits and oh well America trades with China more than China trades with America we buy more of their stuff than they buy from us when we talk about it in that way it creates this idea that the country is a centrally planned country but what it does is it it severs the tie of the humanistic aspect I mean, I guess what I mean it dehumanizes what what's really going on what's really happening when trade is occurring between one country and another. Well, one country does not trade with another. It's not one government. It's not one centrally planned country. It's not one country trading with another. No, it's one business and one business owner trading with another business and another business owner in another country. They're people, ladies and gentlemen. They're everyday people, individuals, trading of their own free will. Because it makes sense for them. It maximizes profits or it's, a, again, lowest price for the highest quality. They're doing it to benefit their customers because they're deriving value from it. I mean, look at almost every freaking item that we own today. Just if you're at your computer desk, if you're at in your car and you got some stuff, you know, stuff in your car, you know, just look at everything. You see where it's made? Read the, the label. Made in China. Made in Cambodia, <laughs> made in wherever, Vietnam, wherever it is. The fact of the matter is, trade is between individuals. The U.S. does not trade. There's no such thing as a trade deficit between nations. Nations do not trade with each other. Individuals inside those nations trade. And you could say, I suppose there's a trade deficit between how many individuals trade and buy items from other individuals in another country and the lack of trade that those individuals in that country and how much they don't buy from us. So maybe the group of individuals that are trading in one country buy more from the other individuals in the other country than those individuals buy from us. So maybe you could say there's a trade deficit there, but there's no trade deficit between nations. Nations do not trade. When we talk about it like that, it's easy in our minds. And I think it's a natural thing that our minds try to do. Our natural, our minds always want to group people together and our minds always want to simplify things. 
so that we can talk about them and understand the topics easier, right? That is something our minds naturally do. But the fact of the matter is that nations don't trade with each other. It's We're not Soviet Russia. We're not Nazi Germany, right? That, that, that's not true. We're, we're, that's not us. Nations do not trade with each other. Individuals trade with each other. That's the truth. Okay? You know, I, I don't mean to burst the bubble of every politician, you know, uh, you know, and Trump-loving politician, you know, a supporter out there, but the fact of the matter is that there's no trade deficit between nations. Nations don't trade with each other. Individuals trade with each other. And when we're engaging in tariffs to defend one group of individuals, or that's what we claim, we're hurting all the other individuals in our nation. And not just business owners, not just the owners of production, but also the proletariat, the workers as well. Also, you know, the, the individual, the, just the normal average day citizens. We're reducing their quality of life, their ability to live a, a, a wonderful life. We're reducing that. If we engage in regulations and trade barriers saying that you have to buy a certain amount of products from our countries and that's a basically our way of trying to protect our companies and our nations and whatnot, that's protectionism, again, it hurts. It only benefits a small portion of the individuals in, in our nation at the expense of everyone else. You see, when you start viewing it as an individual issue and not as a country issue, it brings back the human aspect. It helps us to understand that the people that are trading are just, they're people. They're not machines. They're not a collective of individuals. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to stop viewing trade between nations as nations trading with each other. Because until we become a completely centralized country, you know, a centrally planned country, authoritarianism, you know, uh, well, authoritarianism is, it is centrally planned, but it, it's a bit more than that. You know, they're trying to control every aspect of life, not just trade. But until we become a centrally planned nation completely, or at least mostly, like the Soviet Union or, again, Nazi Germany, we can't really refer to it as countries trading. You know, it's, it's not a government deciding what gets traded and what doesn't. They're people. People making individualistic choices. It's capitalism because that's what capitalism is. Capitalism is individuals engaging in mutually beneficial free trade. That's, what, that's all it is. If you decide to trade one item for another in terms of a barter system, you know, that's capitalism. Even little kids in, engage in capitalism. You say, it's like, I like your toy. Okay, well, I like your toy. You want to trade? Sure, why not? That's capitalism. You know, if you guys are aware of Pokemon cards or Yu-Gi-Oh cards or whatever, if you were ever a kid during that era and whatnot, I mean, I was, I had Pokemon cards and stuff of that nature, you know, and you would want to trade your Pokemon cards with somebody else's Pokemon cards. And well, hey, guess what that is? That's capitalism, free, mutually beneficial trade. That's all it is. The only reason we call it capitalism is because the, the term was coined in order to demonize it. it. Before, it didn't, there wasn't a name for it. It was just free trade. That's all it was. Free, mutually beneficial trade. Um, that's all it was. 
and not necessarily trade as in uh, trading items or like a barter system or it could be trading money for say a service. You know, I, I pay you to fix my car. Capitalism right there. Mutually beneficial. You are, you make some money by providing me a service and then I end up getting my car back in a, in a much uh, re- reliable state and much better state than it was when I brought it to you. Capitalism right there. And that, that's what trading is. When we, when we go off and we buy items from China or Cambodia or Vietnam or wherever it is we're buying, or let's say it's the European Union, France, or South America, it doesn't matter, Chile, when we buy products from other nations, it doesn't matter what nation it is, could, you know, like I said, it could be Chile, it could be, you know, Brazil, wherever, Colombia. The fact of the matter is that we're doing it because it's mutually beneficial to us right? We perceive it as mutually beneficial because it is. It's cheap for us. Maybe we can get goods there that for a cheaper price and a higher quality than we can get goods anywhere else. If a company decides to move its car manufacturing facility to Mexico because it's cheaper labor there and that means that they can lower the costs of their vehicles for their customers or they can keep the costs at it they can control the costs better maybe they're not going to lower them but maybe they could keep them relatively low again that's mutually beneficial trade individuals are deciding to move the company to not only engage in, you know, trading money for labor, but at a cheaper price than where you were in your country. So there's mutual beneficial trade going on there. There's also mutually beneficial trade going on on the other end with regards to the customers buying your products. Now it's cheaper or at least it's, uh, it's not getting more expensive. They can keep the costs down, right? It's all mutually beneficial stuff. When we think about it in that sense, it... I, <laughs> I don't know what the term for dehuman, the opposite of dehumanize, rehumanizes it. I, I don't know, but it it draws into mind that these are people, individual actors. They're individual people. Even the big corporations, while they're very large, somebody in some department, probably a group of people, are deciding to take the business overseas or to trade with another country that's cheaper for them to trade with. But the reason they're making those decisions is because they want it to benefit their customers, the people they are providing the value to. They're trying to maximize their profits. That is absolutely occurring. But they're also trying to benefit their customers, people that they're purchasing for, or people that are purchasing from them. Again, it's, it, it's a, a symbiotic relationship between businesses and people. But then the government comes in and talks about it as if, well, our nation trades with them and buys more stuff from them than they buy from us. And that's hurting our businesses. Well, yeah, it, it does, you know, when, when more of our people, more of our individuals in our nation buy more products from other individuals in another country than those individuals in that country buy from us, sure, that, yeah, uh, you know, there is going to be a shift in demand for different businesses in our nation. Of course that's going to happen. But if we try to protect those individuals from their jobs that are effectively dying out, we are going to hurt the entire nation at the expense of one tiny group. If you guys have never heard of this book, it's Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. This is uh, this is what he talks about a lot in the book. 
it's a beautiful book. I, I, I bought it. I read it. It was one of my first economic books I ever read. Actually, it was, uh, I think it was the second book. The first book I read was, I kind of dived very, very deep into ec- Austrian economics with uh, the causes of economic crises and essays before and around the time of the Great Depression, so something of that nature, written by Ludwig von Mises. And it was a lot of articles that Ludwig von Mises wrote that were all published, in, that were basically were all included in one book. And it was a great book. I wanted to understand the Great Depression. I wanted to understand economic crises. And I read it. And I have to say that it was difficult to read. Uh, it's just, Ludwig von Mises is not easy to read. You know, first and foremost, he was Austrian, so he spoke German. And he didn't really believe in translating his work, so the work was translated. And he also lived in a time where people talked differently, a bit more sophisticated, and they wrote differently as well. They wrote in a much more sophisticated manner in most cases. And as a result of that, his it's hard to understand what he's trying to, to get across. And as if economics isn't hard enough to understand in some cases. But in contrast to that, Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, was really, really great and was easy to understand. It was actually a very, very, very good book, and I very much enjoyed it. So this is, this is where a lot of these ideas are coming from. But look, when we're talking about trade... And we're talking about relationships between one nation to another, in particular when when it comes to trade. We need to understand that it's individuals who are acting. It's not countries and governments. We don't need to talk about it as if it's a national issue, right? Because it's not. It's individuals acting for their own mutual benefit. Who are we to get in the way of that? You know, I mean, I know that there are many people who will lose their jobs if these protectionist, interventionist policies don't occur. I'm well aware of that. But they will find other jobs. This is a way that economies work. This is economics. This isn't capitalism. It's not, you know, well, I guess you could say it is kind of capitalism, but, you know, I don't want it to, you know, people will use it to demonize capitalism, you know, say, oh, well, I lost my job to capitalism and greedy cap- greedy companies wanting to maximize their profits by moving the company overseas. These dirty, greedy capitalists. That's why I'm going to be becoming a socialist. I'm going to go vote for, vote for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> oh, man. The lack of education, the lack of just the economic illiteracy is just rife in that statement, right? The fact of the matter is that while the individual is is angry because their job is going away, the fact of the matter is that the writing was on the wall for some time. And if they were really being honest with themselves, they knew it. They knew the writing was on the wall. They could see the grumblings. They didn't have to be educated to see that. They knew it. They should have known it. And really, it was their fault for not planning for it in the first place. Why must everybody else suffer? Because that individual planned poorly their life. Tried to rely on the unions to protect their job. Why must everyone else suffer? Why must products become more expensive and it become harder to live now because a group of individuals didn't plan appropriately. They didn't see the risks coming down the road. Or they saw them and decided to dig their head in the sand instead of do, and do nothing. Instead of taking action and revamping their skills. It's nothing evil, horrible, or wrong. It's, it's just when new technologies come about that make other, te- other technologies inferior, you get uh, you, industries rise and fall. 
an industry will, you know, new technology comes about and that form of manufacturing is more expensive. It goes away. But those people will find jobs and their labor will ultimately go elsewhere. That's how it works. The labor is determined. It's not proving a lot of benefit. The the people's dollars are, are effectively saying that. So the company goes under and that labor finds its 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 purpose elsewhere. Maybe those people go through a very long, arduous training process and they they end up become going into another form of labor in, in the nation. It you know, I don't want to say again. Just like when we talk about nations with regards to trade and how nations don't trade, we don't want to dehumanize the, the, the people that are in an economy. When we talk about economy and we talk about how labor just gets redistributed, I don't, I don't like talking about it like that because while that is what's happening, there's no one doing the redistribution, right? It's not like it's controlled and these people are losing their jobs That's a, and their, their lives are being uprooted. That's a very emotional thing and it's something that we need to keep in mind and we need to be... I guess compassionate toward we need we, you know we need to have sympathy for that, but that doesn't justify actions on the government to try to prevent it from happening. Because in, if anything, the actions of the government just make matters worse. Ultimately, things change. It's not always a ple- pleasant change. It's not always something we like to do, but things change. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you have labor that is no longer valuable in one area, that labor, eventually those individuals, they go off and they find other jobs. They, they maybe they re-educate them, themselves and find themselves in new industries. And their labor goes in elsewhere, finds another place. They will eventually find a job, right? But if the government comes in and offers them unemployment, if the government comes in, offers them, you know, welfare, Maybe they enroll their kids in welfare and now they're getting checks for their kids. If that happens, that's going to interrupt the process. The labor, their labor will fall out of the market and not come back. That hurts everyone else because their labor is needed. They're highly skilled. Now, I'm not trying to say that if, a, if an individual decides to become a stay-at-home parent, then that hurts the economy. But if this happens in mass where you're paying people to, you know, to sit on their rear ends and do nothing... This is going to hurt an economy. It's going to hurt everybody else. Not only is it going to hurt everyone else through the form of taxation, which is theft, mind you, but it's also going to hurt everybody else in the sense that those individuals are not, you know, out there creating value. Value for other people, maybe, you know, in the form of, of business that they create or value for companies in the form of the labor they provide, whatever, the skills they provide, you know? So, uh, again... When we're talking about economics, and I guess this is the whole lesson of, uh, the whole point of this episode, right, is that when we're talking about economics, when we're talking about trade, when we're talking about anything economically, we need to remember that there are people, what we're talking about is people, individuals, individuals acting, praxeology, why individuals act. We're talking about the individual. One of the reasons I love Austrian economics, because it, it it has a human aspect to it. So many other economists refer to facts and figures and, you know, calculations and mathematical formulas and, and basic and graphs and all this kind of stuff. And they lose the humanity of it all. They lose sight of that. They talk about labor as if it's a thing that there aren't people attached to. They talk about trade as if it's, again, it's a nation doing the trading, when in reality, the nation doesn't trade. 
It's the individuals. They, it's a dehumanizing aspect. It's one of collectivism. It, it, it certainly caters to collectivism. I don't know if that's the intention of it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, but it, it, is, it is a way of getting you out of the mindset of individualism and getting you in the mindset of collectivism. See, words are important. Words matter. Words are, in my most humble opinion, they are the most important thing that we have in our arsenal. They can be used to cause great pain and they can be used to cause warm, fuzzy feelings, you know? Words matter. Semantics, it's important. You know, inflation, it's like inflation. I've talked about this before, you know, briefly, but it's not just a wording issue. The words mean things. It's, it's a definition issue. It's an understanding what it really is issue where Keynesians want you to believe that inflation is rising in prices. It's really hard to get out of that way of thinking. I know that in my pitch for Money Metals Exchange, I just talked about inflation in that way. It's really, really hard to get it out. I, 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 usually I like to refer to it as a monetary devaluation. Uh, it's kind of a fancier term, but it basically means that you're ever when we're talking about money ri- prices rising it's really what's happening is your your, your currency your your money is becoming devalued it's, it doesn't go as far and then that begs the question well why is the money devaluing it's devaluing because they keep printing money and the printing of money or at least the artificial creation of money that's what inflation is well it's it's very very similar to what we're talking about it's it's a matter of terminology and understanding the issues you know it may seem like it's just a small on the surface kind of problem when we're talking about labor or we're talking about trade international trade between nations but that's the wrong kind of terminology it's the wrong way we need to look at it that's the collectivist way of looking at it the individual way of looking at it is it's individuals that are trading with each other it's not it's not a nation therefore there is no trade deficit with regards to nations nations do not trade with each other. Or when it comes to labor being redistributed, no one's doing the redistribution. That's a collective way of thinking about it. The collectivist way of thinking about it is that labor is being redistributed, almost as if central planning. Someone's redistributing the labor. No, it's not happening. Ultimately, what's occurring is, you know, basically consumers, acting individuals that were buying the product from these manufacturers, finally decided that, you know what, um, your product is too expensive. I can't afford it anymore. Or maybe it's it's not so much, you know, the consumers. Maybe it's more the, the business owners. Your product is too expensive. And it's becoming more expensive to do business here in America because of regulations, because of, again, money printing, inflation, and monetary devaluation and whatnot. So I'm going to have to shift where I'm buying my stuff, where I'm getting my materials to make the products that we're making. And in reality, you start to, it starts to bring in the human aspect of it all, all over again. When we start to use the right terminology, the individualist terminology, when we start to think about it in an individualistic way, we, are, we become very, very much aware of what's really going on in the economy. We talk about the economy all the time. And I, I, I'm, I, hey, I talk about the economy a lot and I love economics and whatnot, but I struggle with this too. I talk about the economy sometimes in, in, in many ways, and it really does take away the, the human aspect of it when you do that. It's difficult. It's difficult not to. But yeah, anyways, the point is, is to always remember that there are people tied at the end of it. That doesn't justify the interventionism. 
doesn't justify protectionism. It doesn't justify the governments getting their dirty little fingers in and messing everything up. You know, you know, they don't really care about you anyway. It's, it's rather insulting when the government wants to offer its help because it's highly insulting. It's like a slap in the face because you know they don't care. These are the ruling class. They don't care. They just want votes. That's all they want. Just want votes. Want campaign contributions. They want you to pay money to them. And in reality, everyday citizens' money that gets paid to campaign contributions is a very small drop in the hat when you compare it to the amount of money that some of these politicians get from really big corporations with regard to the lobbyists. But the fact remains is that they don't. most of them don't care. Do you really think the politician gives one iota about the steel worker? If they really did, they wouldn't be engaging in a lot of the, the regulations that make it very expensive for that individual to continue their work. Maybe that individual would have been able to hold on to their, it's his or her job for a longer period of time had the government not came in and made it expensive for them to work and not, per, you know, maybe uh, the job would have survived longer had the politicians not given more power to the unions. Which, by the way, what do unions do? They protect the worst worker and they take all the, cam the union contributions and they give them to who? Politicians, campaign contributions, lobbying, right? And it all benefits the union bosses, the union, the owners of the union. It all benefits the politicians at the expense of everybody else. They don't really care about them. They never did. It was all just a ploy to get their pockets lined with money to make them look like they're caring people and ultimately to effectively get votes, to gain power. Not necessarily through votes, but through, you know, just, you know, basically just through greedy deals between, you know, companies getting bed with governments and all that kind of stuff. Crony capitalism, you know? But the fact of the matter is that it, we need to try and remember that these are real people that are acting. We need to try to remember that. These are individuals that are trading in order to, you know, pursuing their own self-interests, which is what every single individual does. It's not evil. It's just what everybody does. And we need to remember that it's the individual that we're talking about here, not a country or an economy. The economy is the people acting, engaging in free trade. We can simplify it in economic terms in order to try to better understand it, but we always need to remember, what are we really talking about? Well, we're talking about people and their daily lives. And it's, a, it's, it's incredibly important to do that. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I very much did. If you guys did, make sure to like and subscribe wherever you're at. If you're loving what I'm doing here, then hit that share button um, on any platform that you're at. It always helps us out. So please share the show. Yeah, we got a wonderful message here, ladies and gentlemen. We have a message of financial freedom, personal responsibility, free markets, liberty, economics. We've got a beautiful message. If nothing else, I think financial freedom is one of the most important messages that we have. It empowers the individual. When you start to take responsibility for your actions and you start to realize that you can control your destiny and you can shape and direct your life, that is what gives you the power. 
You know, you don't have to continue to look at life in a way where uh, everything else is happening to you, a very reactive life. You can take an active life. You can push your life in the direction you want to go. You determine the outcome of your life. Your life is a direct representation of your decisions. Some of you aren't going to like that idea. Some of you are going to love that idea. But the fact of the matter is that's the truth. That's the reality. We can not live in reality as much as we want, but that is the reality. Our life is a direct representation of our decisions. It's a very empowering statement, though. It means that our, we can change our life. We just have to make different choices. We just have to choose a different path, and we can change it. That means we are in control, not some external factor like government or, or, what, or economics or whatever. We are in control. So ladies and gentlemen, if you like that message, please get out there. Please share it. Make sure to subscribe. If you want to follow me, uh, scroll down to the end of the show notes page and you will find all of the links that I have of where to follow me. I am very active on Twitter and Parler. And those are the places that I'm the most active of. I'm on locals.com, I'm on Facebook, I'm on YouTube. So hey, go hit me up in those areas. If you want to direct, if you want direct access to me, you've got me at Parlor and all sorts of places. And also, last but not least, before we end the episode, ladies and gentlemen, I'm considering offering a service. It would be a paid-for service where I come in and I read articles for you guys. I don't do any personal opinions. I just read articles with regard from the Mises Institute, the Foundation for Economic Education, and the American Institute for Economic Research. These are very, very popular publications. They do Austrian economics, free markets, libertarianism, all that kind of stuff. And the reason I'm considering doing this is because there's a lot of people out there that really desire to read this stuff all the time. They simply lack the time to do it. So I thought that I could come in, I could turn it into audio files, and that could give them the opportunity to indulge in it and basically continue to give them the ability to listen to it on their drive to work, on their drive home from work, maybe on their lunch break, you know, you know stuff of that nature. So I thought it would be really cool, not to mention it would also centralize and uh, where all the information is. You know, instead of going from all three different websites, you know, and trying to read them all, I could basically turn them into audio files and it's all in one place and you got you can have access to it whenever you want. So I thought of doing something of that nature. If you're interested in that, if if you want to basically keep up with what's going on in the economy, keep up with what's going on in politics and whatnot, it's a great way to do it and you don't have to get your information from the dirty you know mass media and social media and stuff. This is a great way to do it. It comes from a perspective that we agree with, an ideology that we agree with. And it's really, really amazing. And yeah, I'd say it's time sensitive. I mean, there's information that we need to be aware of. There's been tons of articles that, I, that I'm reading right now about uh, central bank cryptocurrencies and the dangers of it all. So you know, there's all kinds of stuff that we need to be aware of. And there's a lot of people who aren't aware of this because they don't have the time to read it. Well, that shouldn't be a reason for them not to engage in the content. So I want to turn it into audio files and give them the ability to have easier access to it. So if you are interested in that, Hit me up at my email via Matthew at NewMillenniumWealth.com. I'll put it in the show notes page below because I know that New Millennium Wealth is a bit of a mouthful, so you can just copy and paste it into your email and stuff. So yeah, email me there if you're interested in it. I'm going to be doing it. And yeah, so uh, if you're interested, let me know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hey, 
I absolutely love you guys. Uh, also, one more thing. If you guys love what I'm doing, please go give me a rating review on iTunes. You know, it's one of the best ways for you guys to support the show because it helps us get on the map. It helps us get on the rankings on iTunes, and it's really, really great. So if you love what I'm doing here, then please go give me a rating review on iTunes. And if you really love the show, you want to help support the show, you also want to help and support spreading these ideas of financial freedom, personal empowerment, you know, liberty, you know, free markets, let's say as fair, Austrian economics. If you want to help me share these ideas and spread this message, this message of financial freedom, personal responsibility, then please consider giving a donation to the show. Guys, any amount helps. Whatever you feel is on your heart, any amount helps. It helps me to come in here to provide value for you guys each and every week, but it also helps me to spread that message. So guys, if you will do all that for me, I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly. Have a great day.